So we left off on chapter 6, chapter 6 in Heirs of the Prophets. Chapter 6 is called All of Creation Assisting the Scholar. All of the creation assisting the scholar. So, just by way of reminder, in the era of one million disclaimers, um, if the scholar doesn't act upon what they know, are they a scholar? Do it as a review question. If they don't act upon what they know, are they a scholar? No. Okay. So as long as we're okay on that, we're okay on that. Okay. So if you're feeling like all of creation assisting the scholar, I don't like this, or you feel some sort of discomfort about this, then number one, if they don't act upon it, they're not a scholar. And number two, in case you think it's self-serving, I'm not a scholar. So we're okay. Alhamdulillah. The Prophet ﷺ has said, Verily the angels lower their wings to the seeker of sacred knowledge, pleased with what he or she is doing. Verily the angels lower their wings to the seeker of sacred knowledge, pleased with what he or she is doing. Ibn Majah narrates a hadith related by Zir ibn Hubaysh in which he said, I met Safwan ibn Asad, and he said, What has brought you here? I replied, My quest for knowledge. He said, I heard the Messenger of Allah ﷺ say, no one goes forth from his home seeking knowledge except that the angels lower their wings to him, pleased with what he is doing. This narration is related by Tinmidi and others directly from Safwan. This already came up, right? Interpretations regarding the phrase, the angels lower their wings, vary. Some commentators interpret it literally, saying the angels spread their wings and extend them to students of sacred knowledge, carrying them towards their destinations on earth, helping them in their quest and easing their acquisition of knowledge. Mm. An atheist once heard this hadith and said to some students of sacred knowledge, Lift your feet, don't trample on the angels. Don't trample on the angels' wings and break them. He said this out of ridicule. As a punishment for these words, he remained fixed in his place until his feet dried and he collapsed. <laughs> in another narration, the atheist said they broke the angels' wings. He then made himself a pair of nail-studded sandals, sandals and walked to the circle of knowledge. Thereafter, his feet became afflicted with gangrene. Allahu other commentators interpret the phrase as meaning. So the first possibility is that they actually lower their wings and they help the student of knowledge. This way he's going through the possibilities, right? <coughs> Second is other commentators interpret the phrase as meaning the angels lower their wings out of humility as well as their subservience to the student of knowledge. This interpretation is derived from Allah saying, lower your wing in humility to those believers who follow you. This opinion has validity in that the angels actually have wings. Okay. Yet other commentators interpret it to mean that the angels surround the gatherings of dhikr with their wings overlapping one another until they reach the heavens. A similar interpretation is found in one of Safwan's narration of the hadith. The angels surround the student of knowledge with their wings, then they ride on each other until they reach the lower heaven exuberant by the student's quest. Perhaps this is the weakest interpretation in Allah's best. So one of the things to note from this 
is that what's happening here is you have the statement of the Prophet them, right? And then you have a question as to what does it mean? So the Shaykh, what he's doing is he's saying there's a number of different possibilities of what this can mean. And if we were to take this possibility, we have to walk through it here. And if we take this possibility, we walk through it here. And if we take this possibility, we walk through it here. And one of them might be stronger or weaker. Now, why is he going through this process? Right? So when you have text, obviously we have text, Quran. You have text from the Prophet them. In order to, what the, what the scholars were trying to do is how do I have deference and reverence with the text? How do I acknowledge the supremacy of revelation in my life? That if Allah said it, if the Prophet said it, then, you know, it's, it's above question. But at the same time, I know that there are things that Allah and His Prophet had told us about that go beyond our ability to understand. And then there are many things that we can understand. And so how do I now, I have this text in front of me, how do I engage with this in a way that uh, maintains the respect for the text, while at the same time maintains respect for the mind? Because we have to think and we have to do things and we have to, you know. So this is why he's going through these different possibilities. It seems that he leans to the second one, which is that they lower their wings in humility. So if we think about that a little bit, then we recognize that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created human beings and he told he created Adam and he told the angels should bow to Adam and the angels were kind of like not out of uh, disrespect but out of wanting to understand like why did you create this creation they're going to cause problems they're going to make issues so on and so forth and Allah said I know what you don't know another thing that has to happen when you're dealing with this which he kind of does also is like okay if I'm going to try to understand how to reconcile the revelation and reason and different text. I have to look at the different text. Okay, so he mentions like there's this one that happens. So when we have the creation of the the humans and the situation with the angels, then uh, also we have narrations that say that on the day of Arafah, that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala addresses the angels when everyone is gathered on the day of Arafah and they're in in the ihram and they're making du'a and you have this amazing scene of the day of Arafah that Allah gathers the angels and He tells them this is why I created them. Now do you get it? This is why I created them, right? So there's moments where the angels, even though they're created and and they're they're created and they they obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But because of that, as the scholars have talked about, is that so who's higher in rank, the angel or the human? <coughs> and it goes both ways actually, obviously. If the human being doesn't do what they're supposed to do, then they're lower in rank than the angels. But they say that the human being that does what they're supposed to do and submits themselves to Allah and tries to follow the way of the Prophet and purifies themselves and improves themselves and so on and so forth, then this person actually is of higher rank than the angels. This person is of higher rank than the angels. And how would a person go down that route of attaining this is that they would have to seek and attain and practice true knowledge, sound knowledge, right? So now if you have someone who's going down the path of seeking the sacred knowledge and learning about Allah and learning about the religion, learning about the way of the Prophet then you wouldn't be surprised if the angels lower their wings to them out of humility, right? Because the angels now are recognizing the rank of like this person is on the right way and, uh, and what they're doing is really tremendous because 
they have a choice. You know, they have a choice. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves. That sometimes we get very hard on ourselves and we get very um, negative how we look at ourselves and how much we're doing and we should be doing more and so on and so forth. And uh, we just have to remind ourselves that like, we're human beings. And if you look around us, there's a lot of other human beings. And many of them have chosen all different ways. You know, uh, we, we gave them different routes and they went different ways. You know? And for someone to affirm the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to affirm the existence of the Prophet وسلم, to seek to follow the way of the Prophet وسلم, that's really tremendous, even if they're making mistakes. Even if they're making sins, even if they're falling into issues, even if they have whatever, you know, people have all kinds of things that they're struggling with. Whatever it is that they're struggling with, they're still a believer. And that's really, really big, you know. So, um, so the angels lower their wings in humility to these people. Now, one of the other things that we get from this and we understand from this is that when we have text, the... the how do I say this? So you have two extremes, right? One extreme is you have the text and you take the text no matter what. Sometimes people don't even think about it at all. They don't even consider it at all. What is its source? What is its, how is it supposed to be interpreted? How should it be understood? But it's just the text. Allah said this, the Prophet said this. Sometimes, like I said, it's not even true that the Prophet said that. But they think the Prophet said that. So the Prophet said this, I'm going to change my whole life to do this thing. Alhamdulillah, it's a beautiful intention. But... It's one extreme. <laughs> the other extreme is, I'm going to use my mind and my intellect to understand whatever I want to understand, and whatever I come to, that's the right conclusion. For people who, uh, we should just be honest with ourselves, if, if, especially for people who are older. We know that there have been many times in our lives when we came to a particular conclusion, and we thought it was the right conclusion, and it wasn't the right conclusion. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm very adamant, this position, this is what I should be doing. This is the way to go. This is the route to take. This is the thing that I should do. And we have to make decisions in life. That's part of life, right? But as we do that, we realize, that, okay, like not always are we right. And that should give us enough pause to realize that the mind in and of itself is not sufficient. It's not sufficient in and of itself. And then in addition to that, it has two problems. Number one is that the mind is not usually developed properly. Despite what we think about ourselves, <laughs> you know, uh, we think that we're really smart, we think that we're doing things properly, but really it takes a lot to hone the skills of the mind, to sharpen them to the point that it's analyzing things properly, and it's not falling into mistakes, and it's not making generalizations, not coming to false conclusions, so on and so forth. It's really hard for people who are highly educated to accept this, but it's true, okay? The second problem with the mind is that the mind is, as we mentioned before, is affected by the heart. So it's not always that like my, the way that I'm perceiving this, it's not always that I'm approaching this from the right direction. I might have a personal uh, stake in it. I might have some issue that some, some way, the way that I'm addressing this is not sound. So this is why this other extreme of like only using the mind is also too far. It's also too far. But what is the basic middle ground of Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah, the basic middle ground of, of Sunni Muslims throughout history is there's a position in between this. There's a position where we have absolute respect and deference for the revelation 
And we also have respect for the human mind and the ability for the human being to think and to process and so on and so forth. And in between here in the middle, we have a process that helps us to then engage with both of these things. So if you see what he did, his conclusion that he came to is a conclusion that respects the text, but also respects the, what the mind is doing, right? So this is very, very important. You see, usually the extremists, they don't get this right. And by extremist, I don't just mean the violent extremists, okay? Like the liberal extremists are also extremists. People just want to like make up whatever they want about religion. That's also an extreme. And another extreme is, I'm just, they, both of them actually are making up whatever they want about religion. Actually, if you really get down to it, even the people who are like, no, the verse says this, we have to do this. Or the hadith says this, we have to do this. They haven't considered like, okay, well, what possible interpretations are there in that verse? There are possible interpretations. There are also interpretations that go totally outside. You know, like I was saying one time that I was in a khutbah one time. And the brother was like giving uh, English tafsir on Surah Al-Teen, you know. And he's like, the fig that Allah mentions in the surah is the figment of your imagination. <laughs> and I was like, you know, like subhanAllah, he's sincere, whatever. I'm not judging the person, but that's my point in saying this: is that there are way there are levels of interpretation that are actually not acceptable. Like, okay, now you've, you've gone to the point where you threw out the text. So we want to make this balance. This balance is very important. Creatures assisting the scholars. The hadith says, As for the scholar, everything in the heavens and earth, even the fish in the water, seek forgiveness for him or her. Allah informs us in his book that the angels seek forgiveness for the generality of believers. He says, those angels who carry aloft the throne of God and those surrounding it glorify the praises of their Lord. They believe in Him and seek forgiveness for the believers. So what is the point? He's saying that the angels who carry the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the ones that are around them, they seek forgiveness for the believers. It's really amazing, right? It's a verse in the Quran. These angels who have this tremendous task of carrying the harsh, carrying the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they seek forgiveness for the believers. And he also says, subhanahu the angels glorify the praises of their Lord and seek forgiveness for the inhabitants of the earth. This forgiveness is comprehensive, extending to all believers. Yet all things on earth, even the fish in the sea, seek forgiveness for the scholars. Timothy relates in a hadith from Abu Umama that the Prophet said, Indeed, Allah, the angels, the denizens of the heavens, of, uh, heavens and the earth, the ants in their burrows, and the fish in the sea pray for blessings to come upon those who teach good to people. Pray for blessings to come upon those who teach good to people. Tabarani relates from Jabir that the Prophet said, Everything, even the fish in the sea, seeks forgiveness for one who enlightens the people. He further relates from Bara ibn Azam, from the Prophet, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets. The inhabitants of heaven and earth love them. When the scholars die, the fish in the sea seek forgiveness for them from the time they die until the day of resurrection. <clears throat> so of course one of the things that often comes up here is like I have to really think you know that's a big deal <laughs> right like you say the, the scholar the true scholar everything in creation is aiding them and making dua for them and seeking their forgiveness and the fish in the sea and there's a lot of fish in the sea right like when you when you go and you watch these documentaries and you see these schools of fish there's a lot of fish in the sea right subhanAllah so when you think about that like like, why would this be the case? 
That should uh, the question, the reasonable question would be, why? Like this is a tremendous situation. Why would that situation be the case? And in order to really understand that, we have to really um, consider that the way of the Prophet the way of the Prophets the way of the Prophets the Prophets teach us how it is that we live in the world such that the world remains in balance as Allah says in Surah Al-Rahman right? that Allah has made the heavens He raised them and he placed there in balance. And he commanded us to be just and maintain that balance. So what happens when human beings don't do what they're supposed to do? Every other thing in creation, what happens when they don't do what they're supposed to do? It doesn't happen, right? They do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> all the animals do what they're supposed to do. All of the trees do what they're supposed to do. All of the, everything else does what it's supposed to do. It's only human beings that don't do what they're supposed to do. And when there's just a few of them, that's still like the system isn't always affected in such a heavy way. But when there's a lot of human beings who don't do what they're supposed to do, then the system is affected in a tremendous way, right? I mean, look at the summer. Look at the last couple of weeks. You know, politics aside and everything else, people made this all political issues. Politics aside, anyone who's been in San Diego for the last 20 years knows that the last, two, last couple of weeks have been very strange. It's not normal, okay? Anyone who like, does any sort of research around corruption and pollution and all this stuff, like, is it normal for there to be huge swaths of floating plastic oceans like in the middle of the ocean? That doesn't, that's not, that's not s sound, right? Like, is it, is it normal for rivers to be completely contaminated such that people can't drink from them? That if they drink from them, they get sick and they die and so on and so forth. Is it, normal for the, is it normal for the chickens you eat, they can't stand on their legs because they have so much growth hormone in them that if they were to stand on their legs, their legs would break? That, that can't be normal, right? So all of these are corruptions. Uh, as Allah says, The corruption has shown in the land and in the sea because of what people did with their own hands. So what happens? All of these things, by the way, Sharia has rulings on these things. You know, one one non-Muslim philosopher, he said about Muslim Spain. Said about Muslim Spain, that Muslim Spain was so advanced intellectually and culturally and everything else that it could have made some of the inventions that led to the industrial revolution, that led to basically the modern world. Right? It, they could have made some of those inventions, but it's not just about what can you invent. So when I invent this thing, what is going to happen from it? You know, like one of the scholars of Andalusia actually said, "Al-Alim al-Rabbani wal-Nadi yujib wa an-Su'alatu huwa nadirun ila al-Ma'alat." Imam al-Shatibi, rahimahullah. He said the godly scholar, they answer questions and they're looking at where is this thing going to lead. So you just open this door. You don't open a door you don't want to walk through, because if you open that door, you're going to walk through it. You know. And uh, one of our teachers, he said, commenting on this, which is very, it's a beautiful thing. I don't know if I've said it here before, but I feel like this is one of those things that I heard, like Allah really gave him an insight on this thing. And 
I've said it a million times, and every time I say it, it blows my mind. Just he said that when you do all of these discoveries, you know, when you deal in science, when you deal in engineering, when you deal in physics, when you deal in all of these physical discoveries in the physical world, when you do that, you're studying at a very deep level the sunnah, the sunnah of Allah in creation. Okay? You're studying the sunnah of Allah in creation. How did Allah make this thing? He made it so there's a relationship between this and that. And if we manipulate this, then it has this consequence and so on and so forth. It's all basically, you know, when you get really deep into science, you're studying the sunnah of Allah in creation. So, but if you, if you knock very deeply on the sunnah of Allah in creation, and you don't enter through the sunnah of the messenger of Allah, wasallam, you'll corrupt everything. If you don't enter through the sunnah of the messenger of Allah, wasallam, you'll corrupt everything. And this is what we see, right? So why does everything in creation make dua for the scholar? SubhanAllah, I think actually like this, we can understand it better today than maybe people 300 years ago, 400 years ago. Imagine you live like 400 years ago, you're in some village, life is very simple, you have your animals, you, you milk them and you, you take care of them and you're hungry so you kill a chicken and you eat it and like you know you have some stuff you grow in your field and you read this and you're like why is a scholar so different because like we're all okay here you know like we're good with the animals too but now you really see it like what happens when this guidance is lost what happens when this guidance is lost everything becomes corrupt so now now you really see like ah oh, now I see why would the fish make dua for this because this is this person is giving the people and keeping alive for the people the way of the Prophet And the way of the Prophet and the way of the sacred law, the Sharia, is that it puts everything in balance. So now, now I see it. Because look at the corruption that comes as a result. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us. It is related that such forgiveness is also sought for the student. Imam Ahmed relates on the authority of Qabisa ibn al-Mukhariq. I came to the Prophet and he asked, what has brought you here? I said, my years have advanced and my bones are fragile. I have come to you in order that you might teach me something with which Allah will benefit me. He said, Qabisa, you haven't passed by a single burrow, nor a tree, nor a mud hill, except that its inhabitants sought forgiveness for you. Except that its inhabitants sought forgiveness for you. Something very, very important about this narration. Okay, so in some of the previous sessions too, we talk about the intellectual tradition, we talk about scholars and what it means to be a scholar and all of these kind of things, right? And then even for myself, like, and people will say that often, scholars usually don't consider themselves scholars. At best they would say, maybe I'm a student of knowledge, maybe I'm a talib, you know? And then people like us would say, like, I'm toilet, you know, like a little talib. <laughs> There's students and then there's like little students, you know? There's like the TK students and there's the students. So, but what does he say in this narration? Note it, because that means that it applies to all of you. That's why it matters, right? If I'm seeking any piece of knowledge, any piece of knowledge that has a good sound source, and I'm seeking it so that I can benefit in my relationship with Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, I fall in this category. Let me read it again. So you can make sure that you caught it. The Prophet asked the companion, what has brought you here? He said, my years have advanced and my bones are fragile. I've come to you in order that you might teach me something with which Allah will benefit me. And he said, you haven't passed by a single burrow, nor a tree, nor a mud hill, except that its inhabitants sought forgiveness for me. SubhanAllah. Right? 
So you wake up in the morning, you say, you know what, I'm going to go to this class. I don't really feel like it. Sometimes it's a little bit boring, but maybe I'll get something beneficial that will help me in my relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I'm going to go. And then you go, and everything makes dua for you. Imagine, that's like, really? Uh, you know, there's things, there, part of the, the quote-unquote magic of this, don't get lost in the term, right? <laughs> they took fear on me. Part of the magic of this is that there are things happening in creation all the time that we don't know about. You know? Like there's angels doing the things that they're doing, and the animals are doing the things that they're doing, and like, you know, we're doing what we're doing, and like I said, there's a balance to it all, right? So sometimes we can be not in line, like we didn't, we didn't resonate with the rest of creation. And then there's moments where we might intend to do something good. You know, we're going to help someone, we're going to do something good for someone. We're going to make someone feel good. We're going to show someone that we care about them. We're going to seek a, like, a little bit of knowledge, try to help our community, try to serve in some sort of way. And then we do that, and everything aligns. And now all of those birds are making dua for the person. All of those snakes are making dua for the person. The trees, you're in line with the trees now. Like, you ever sit and think, for example, you know, sometimes when you're a place where there's a lot of trees, if you get... By the way, have you noticed the times when the birds are really loud? Or the times when you're supposed to make dhikr, right? Like, the best times in the day to make dhikr are after asr until maghrib. After you pray asr until maghrib. And either before Fajr prayer or after Fajr prayer until sunrise. And these are the times when the birds are going crazy, right? And sometimes you sit and you hear all these birds and you just say to yourself, SubhanAllah. And like, we're all on the same page. All the birds and the humans, we're all on the same page saying, SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah, you know? One of the things I used to love in Egypt was there was a culture around, at least within the neighborhood we were in, and I think it's probably pretty common, there's a culture around aging. You know, people aren't scared to get old. Actually, I don't know how it is now. I've been told a lot of things have changed, but people weren't scared to get old. They were kind of like happy to get old. Because when you're old, now you're a hag, and like you have different rules that you get to live by. <laughs> you interact with people differently, and like you're, you know, people have to show you respect, they have to show you deference. And in our neighborhood, it was very common the after Fajr prayer, there was like a group in every, in every little neighborhood masjid, there was a group of old men who would pray Fajr in the masjid and they read Qur'an together after Fajr. Like a little circle, you know? Every day they meet and they read Qur'an. And I'm like, SubhanAllah, this is what you're supposed to do when you get old. You know? Like, this is how you age gracefully. Like the Prophet them said, when you get older, there's certain things you're supposed to do. Like you realize, okay, I'm getting older. My time is running out. I just want to worship Allah. Of course, sometimes people don't have that option, they don't have that luxury, whatever. But there's... And then like you would leave the masjid, you come home. <clears throat> and I used to like to sit on the balcony after Fajr and listen to Qur'an radio. And I would look out and like all these old men are also sitting on the balcony <laughs> listening to Qur'an radio. <laughs> it's like me and all the old people. <laughs> but it was so beautiful. Because it's like... And actually when you go around to the stores and stuff, everyone starts their morning with Qur'an. Like the guy, by the middle of the morning, by the middle of the day, he's going to be cursing and like yelling and <laughs> cursing people's children and their parents and like everything in between. But in the morning, it's Qur'an. In the morning, it's Qur'an. And because it's on the radio, 
What's beautiful about that is that everyone's having the same experience. Part of the problem of like, you know, you choose your own thing to listen to is everybody has a different experience. You know, but if everyone's listening to the radio, everyone has the same experience. So like I would leave the house, it's in, a, it's in the surah, right? And then you go down to the store and the, you hear the rest of the surah. And then you walk down the street and you get in the taxi and the surah continues, right? Like everyone's listening to the same surah because everyone's listening to the same thing. It's really beautiful. And so you feel like there's this, there's something right about that, you know? Like there's, everything is, is and of course, like Cairo is Cairo. Anyone who's been to Cairo, you understand Cairo. <laughs> Place is insane. But there's those moments where you're like, SubhanAllah, this is right. This is, this is good and this is right. So there's any time we make that intention, part of what we understand from this is make an intention to benefit in your relationship with Allah. You make an intention to benefit in your relationship with Allah and everything comes together. Don't make an intention for power. Don't make an intention for respect. Don't make an intention for money. Don't make an intention for whatever else people make intentions for. Make an intention for, I want to. It's not only for the dust, not only for a lesson, for anything. Your, your work is the same. I'm making an intention, I want to do this, and I want to benefit something in my relationship with Allah. If you do that, then, you know, every, imagine everything is like all chaos, and then it just settles. Everything settles and goes in the right place. The following verse is a further indication of this concept. O oh, you who believe, remember Allah much and glorify Him morning and evening. He sends His blessings upon you, as do His angels, that He may take you from darkness to light. Remember Allah much and glorify Him morning and evening. He sends His blessings upon you, as do His angels, that He may take you from darkness to light. And he is merciful to the believers. What a beautiful verse. SubhanAllah, what a beautiful verse. <coughs> One of the keys really to, to Islamic spirituality and to really understanding our relationship with Allah, it's related to the thing before about text and intellect, is that how do I recognize that I have responsibilities and things that I have to do? But in the ultimate truth of it, Allah does whatever He wants and Allah does everything. These are, these are both true. Okay? Just like it's both true that we have a text that we have to have submission to, and we have our mind that we have to use. Both of these are true. And somehow we figure out how to navigate this, right? It's also true that I have things that I have to do, and in the end, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does whatever He wants. He does whatever He wants, subhanahu. And nothing happens without His will, and nothing happens without His permission, and everything is under His power and His control. Subhanallah. If we understand this, that means that we do the things that we're supposed to do. But in the end, we do the things that we're supposed to do, and we're kind of like leaving it in front of Allah. Turn my affair over to Allah, Allah is seeing of his servants. Why am I saying that? The verse says what? Remember God often in the morning and the evening. He sends his blessings upon you, as do his angels, that he may take you from darkness to light. That he may take you from darkness to light. Sometimes we do all the things that we're doing and we think that we're the one who's doing it. So like I want to be better, I want to be guided, 
I want to improve in my relationship with Allah. I'm going to get out my checklist and I'm going to pray these prayers and I'm going to do this dhikr and I'm going to get this knowledge and I'm going to check off all of these things and inshallah I'm going to get better. Maybe. Inshallah you will, but that's not why. Like that's the part of it that you're supposed to do. Allah tells us in the beginning of the verse, pray and remember Allah often in the morning and the evening. Why? Because He sends His blessings on you and His angels and He takes you from darkness to light. It's not you. You didn't take yourself from darkness to light because you remembered Allah in the morning and the evening. Allah took you from darkness to light because you remembered Allah in the morning and the evening. Okay? It's a very important distinction. Very important distinction. And this is when this reality is understood, this is when everything starts to move with us. That's the beautiful thing about this. You know? <coughs> that the person, if they're moving by themselves, they're moving by themselves. But if they're moving with Allah, then everything is moving with them. And this is why one of the terms that they use for like the people of very elevated spiritual state is that they say that they have tasarruf. They have, I don't even know how to translate this. They have some sort of like, basically when they move in the world, things move with them. Not because of who they are, but because of who they are with Allah. So this is a very important distinction. So, you know, subhanAllah, subhanAllah, subhanAllah. Uh, they used to say about Sidi Abu Abbas al-Sibti radiallahu ta'ala anhu that, that he used to say that it was said about him I'm not sure if he used to say but he was known for his tremendous generosity tremendous generosity and it was said that it was judun yanfa'inu bihim wujud judun yanfa'inu bihim wujud like the generosity is such it's a play on words in Arabic it's hard to get in English but the generosity is such that it animates the rest of creation. So you've probably seen people like this, right? Like their conviction with Allah and the good that they do and the way that they do it makes it so that everything moves with them. You know? They move and everything moves with them. It's amazing actually, subhanAllah. By the way, even non-Muslims understand this. A lot of these understandings actually, this is going to sound really borderline bad, but I feel that I benefited from it. Uh, some of these things, actually, I understood them better when I read this fiction book. I don't necessarily think you should read it because it's like 16 volumes or something. I stopped after nine. I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's too much. But um, uh, what is it called? The Wheel of Time. They tried to make it into a thing on Amazon and it was whack. But the, the actual book has some really interesting like, notes on... It'll give you insights into Qadr. Like, how do you understand Qadr? And how do you understand this idea even? Like, in the book, there's this concept of there's certain people in every time that if you come into their orbit, you're automatically taken into their orbit. Okay, so what is it? It means, like, they're, they're so impactful that if you come in contact with them, your life is going to change in some way or, some way or form, right? There's, and now that might be like in a very kind of like fantasy fiction type way, but this is also true. Like there are people, if you come into contact with the Prophet you think your life is not going to change? Your life is changing. Even if it's at a distance, even if you're like, you know, it was a relative who met the Prophet your life is going to change. Right? So, and there's people who are, it's just very interesting concepts. SubhanAllah, may Allah help us and protect us and give us good. 
Allah and His angels send blessings upon the people of dhikr. As And as previously mentioned, knowledge is among the best forms of dhikr. Hakim relates from Sanab ibn Amr, who said, A man came to Abu Umama and said, Abu Umama, I have seen in my dream angels praying for your forgiveness every time you enter and leave, every time you stand and sit. Abu Umama replied, May Allah forgive me. Do not mention such things. This is the way. Huh? See how beautiful, like, this person comes to him and says this, he says, Do not, don't say such things. Allah forgive me. He then recited, if, he, if, if you wished, the angels would pray for your... And then he said, do not mention such things. If you wished, the angels would pray for your forgiveness. He says, hey, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal, actually. You don't have to talk about it. But look at the verse. He tells him the verse. He then recited, O you who believe, remember Allah much and glorify Him morning and evening. He sends His blessings upon you, as do, as do His angels, that He may take you from darkness to light, and He is merciful to the believers. Look how they understood the verses. He says, I saw this dream, you know, mashallah. Every place you go, every place you go, every place you sit, every place you stand, the angels are making dua for you, asking for your forgiveness. He's like, don't worry about it. If you say this verse, if you do what's in this verse, they're going to do the same for you. Just remember Allah. Remember Allah in the morning. Remember Allah in the evening. Remember Allah every time in between. And Allah is going to send His blessings upon you. And the angels are going to make dua for your forgiveness everywhere you go. Don't worry about it. You're in the same boat. <laughs> He's like, you know, Allah is generous. Look at the end of the verse. And He is merciful to the believers. Allah is merciful to the believers. Look at these gifts He gives the believers. SubhanAllah. Everyone, is, everyone shares in this. It's not like, you know, it's like one of the beautiful things they say about making salah on the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam. You know, when we say, Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad SallAllahu Alaihi Muhammad SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is a particular dua, right? We're asking uh, for mercy and forgive, forgiveness and, and blessings for the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's a dua for the Prophet. They say one of the beautiful things about this dua for the Prophet is that it's answered no matter what. It doesn't matter who the person is. A person could be like the most sinful person, they could be the worst person, they could be, you know, someone who does whatever they do. But when they pray for the Prophet, their dua is answered. That's why from the etiquette, like this is one of the wisdoms of the etiquette of making dua, is that we make dua by praising Allah, sending salah on the Prophet, then we ask for what we want, then we send salah on the Prophet, Because these two duas of salah on the Prophet are accepted. So they always say, if these two end ones are accepted, then, you know, we think well of Allah that the one in between is going to be accepted. Right? So this is very, uh, it's very essential. You know, we can't let, notice this as an issue for all of us, myself included. We can't let the self-criticism that we have for ourselves and how real that is for ourselves, we can't let that taint what we believe about Allah. There's nothing like Allah. I can't let my own anger and frustration with myself, I can't make Allah that. Say things like, how can Allah forgive me? How can Allah help me? How can this? How can, how can my dua be answered? Your dua can be answered because Allah is Allah. That's why it can be answered. Because Allah is not you. Allah is not me. Allah is not our parents or our uncles or our relatives or the person who treated us bad or whatever. That's not Allah. Allah is God. Allah has no similarity, has no partners, He has no beginning, He has no end, He has no need from anything. It's pure tafaddum, ana ibadi. It's complete and absolute generosity that He gives His servants whatever He gives them, subhanahu wa ta'ala, at any moment and, and in every single moment. You know, the servants are always benefiting from ni'mat al-ijad wa ni'mat al-imdad, scholars always say.
always benefiting from ni'mat al-ijad and ni'mat al-imdad. Ni'mat al-ijad is that Allah brings things into existence. Ni'mat al-imdad is that He continues their existence. It's a, it's, a, it's a blessing to come to a gathering where Allah's name is mentioned. It's a blessing to continue to breathe in it every single second that passes in that gathering. It's a blessing too that our, our blood continues to flow and our breaths continue to go and our ears continue to work and our eyes work and we see things. And all of these are all blessings that take place every single moment and every single thing in creation, every single moment Allah is creating and every single moment is a hayyum qayyum, subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the living and He is the sustaining. Subhanahu, 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 glorified is he, glorified is he. Creatures of the earth, some commentators explain that the beasts seek forgiveness for the scholars because the scholars spread goodness and mercy in the world. Also, the scholars command people to do good to all creation, even to slaughter in the most merciful way those animals that can be lawfully slaughtered. The goodness of scholars is thereby extended to the entire animal kingdom. For this reason, animals seek forgiveness for the scholars. Um, now we get into a big commentary on the food industry. <laughs> Allah protect us from ourselves. Allah protect us from ourselves. Meat became so important to us that we're willing to oppress entire species of animals because we want to eat more meat and it has to be cheap enough that we can eat it. You know? That's really what it comes down to. It's a really bad thing. If you think about it, think about why do the rules of slaughter matter in the Sharia? Why do they matter? As a general rule, are you allowed to kill things? No. As a general rule is, we don't kill things. There's only exceptions to that. There's, there's people who maybe cause tremendous corruption in the, in the land, and in order to prevent that corruption, they have to be stopped. Sometimes this is the case. Sometimes there's animals that might pose some sort of harm to human beings, and so we have an exception that we can kill them. And then we eat these animals. We eat certain animals that Allah has made deemed allowed for us. And so they must be killed in a certain way in order for them to be allowed. This is an exception. That's why the, the act of slaughtering is so important. Bismillah Allahu Akbar. You say Bismillah Allahu Akbar and you slaughter the animal. It's an exception to the rule. It's not just I get to eat whatever I feel like because, you know, how can I live? I need my 75 grams of protein today. And if I don't have like my hamburger, then I'm not going to have my 75 grams of protein and everyone loves In-N-Out, so I have to eat In-N-Out okay, like into Mesquite. Just because someone, everyone loves something, you have to eat it? Like, how weird is that? Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> like, just sit, think about it for a second. Like, oh, everybody loves this food. I have to eat this food. What do you mean you have to eat this food because everybody loves this food? Like, hey, you should have some karama. Some honor, like... <laughs> Forgive me, I'm a little bit harsh on this issue. I just feel that human beings should maintain their honor. I feel like it's dishonorable to like live your life chasing after food. <laughs> food should have a purpose. It has a, it has a, we, we, we use it for a purpose. If, we're, if we slaughter the food and we mention the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we're grateful to Allah for it and, and all of these things and we, we, uh, we want to prepare the food so that we can honor our guests, we can honor our family, we can take care of ourselves, and we can be strong, and we can be healthy, and we can worship Allah, and we can stand up for what is true and what is right, and all of these kind of things, and what a blessing food is. But if the only blessing of food is so that I can live a life of heedlessness, and just chase around food, then that's very strange. You know, it's not, 
but it has to be connected to something bigger. Everything has to be connected to something bigger. If it's not connected to something bigger, it has no purpose. Everything. Our work, our food, our clothes, everything has to be connected to something bigger because we weren't made without purpose. <coughs> this, for this reason, animals seek forgiveness for the scholars. You think about it, like some of the, some of the shiuch, they're very strict on how we kill animals and how we eat them, right? Sure, you could say there's a difference of opinion. There's, don't ask me about it afterwards. <laughs> there's a difference of opinion. Can you eat this? Can you eat that? It's not the point. But I can imagine that all of those cows that are in these horrible conditions and are seeing their friends get slaughtered and killed and being mistreated and all of this other stuff, I can imagine that they make dua for the person who's really strict on the, on the beer. I can, I can definitely imagine that as a reality, you know? They're like the oppressed of the animals. Allah forgive us. Another meaning reveals itself to some commentators. Animals are dutifully obedient to Allah and submissive to Him. They glorify Him and are not rebellious. Obedient beasts thus love obedient humans. That being so, what should their attitude be towards the scholar who teaches people about Allah and the rights owed to Him and who calls to His obedience? Allah loves one who possesses these characteristics. Allah purifies him, praises him, and orders everyone and everything in the heavens and the earth to love and pray for him. In this way does he send his blessings upon the scholar. He places love for him in the hearts of his believing servants. Allah the Exalted says, Indeed those who believe and do righteous deeds, the merciful, will evoke love for them. 1996. There's a hadith, of course, that's related to that. I refer to it as the hadith of self-esteem. Hadith of self-esteem. The one where the Prophet ﷺ says that Allah loves some of his servants. And when he loves a servant, he calls Jibreel. And he tells Jibreel, Oh Jibreel, I love so-and-so, so love them. And then Jibreel calls the angels in the heavens. And he tells the angels, Allah loves so-and-so, so love so-and-so. And the angels love the person. And then the angels call out, and then the angels go and they put the love of that person in the hearts of the people in the earth. Right? Of course, if the people's hearts are corrupt, it's not going to work. But if the people are good, um, the people are good. And uh, so this is, the, this is the hadith of self-esteem. Forget everything else. Forget popularity. People like me. People don't like me. Do I have enough followers? Am I able, am I able to sell my soul and my life? in my being, in my entire existence online so that I can make a few dollars. Don't worry about all of those things. Worry about, am I living my life and doing my life in a way that is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and, and trusting that if I try to do that and if I make that effort as much as possible, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, glorified and exalted is He, who has no similitude, who is the creator, who is the sustainer, and everything else that we said, will call Himself Sayyidina Jibreel salam, and mention your name to Sayyidina Jibreel. Say, Sayyidina Jibreel, I love Funan ibn Funan. I love so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. love this person. And Jibreel will call your name to the people in the heavens, to the angels in the heavens. This is a remarkable hadith. Very important. Very important. It's a hadith of self-esteem. After that, what is there to worry about? There's nothing to worry about after that. Related to this is the next section, the weeping of the heavens and the earth. Love for the scholar is not limited to the animate. In fact, inanimate objects also love him or her. This meaning is conveyed in the explanation of the verse, the, heaven, the heavens and the earth wept not for the wrongdoers. <coughs> this verse, you know, about the, the corrupt, disbelieving people. It says about them when they die, 
that not, the heavens and the earth don't cry over them when they die. The heavens and the earth aren't upset when the corrupt person dies, right? They're relieved in a sense. Commentaries on this verse mention the following narrations. The sky weeps 40 days for the believer when he dies. And the earth says to the believer when he is buried, you are the most beloved of those walking on my surface. You will see my gentle treatment when you are placed in my interior. The earth says to them. Yeah. So I'm saying there's things going on. We don't know that they're going on. It doesn't mean they're not going on. <laughs> you could say, oh, that's a weak hadith. It's this and it's that. So Ibn Rajab was very strict in hadith. So, you know, we mentioned that in the beginning. Ibn, Ibn Rajab was very strict in hadith. So if he brings a hadith and it's not entirely reliable hadith, there's a reason why he's bringing it. And, you know, he has, he has secondary sources to support his uh, consideration of the text. Only sinful men and, men and jinn hate the believer and the scholar because the rebellion of the sinners and the jinn against Allah requires that they place their obedience to their wild inclinations ahead of their obedience to Allah. It's very important. Who's going to hate the person who's speaking the truth? The person doesn't want to follow the truth. That's it. They'd rather follow their desires. And we all fall into this. Many times we'd rather follow our desires. Many times we'd rather follow our desires. You know? And I'm sure we go through these struggles. Like sometimes you had a really long work day and you're super tired and it's like there's another hour until Aisha comes in. Another half an hour until Aisha comes in. Or you binge watched a bunch of Netflix and it's super late in the morning and now there's only two hours until Fajr. Because you know you should get up for Fajr. But like do I want to follow my nafs, my desires, or do I want to follow something else? And in the end, there is no Islam without going against your nafs. That is the whole thing. Like one of my, one of my teachers, I asked him one time, I told him about something that happened and I was talking to him about it. And he's like, that's the whole thing. There's nothing else to it. The whole thing is like mukhalafat al-nafs. The whole thing is to get a hold of your nafs. That's the whole thing. The whole path of scripture. Right? The one who fears standing in front of their Lord and they prevent their base self from its desires. Then Jannah is their abode. And Jannah is their abode. So in the end, it's like, how do I... Why is it? Of course, some people, they just want to follow their desires, so they're going to be mad at you. I want you to change the religion. I want you to say that they can do this, they can do that. I tell them, like, look, I don't, it's, not, it's not personal. <laughs> but that doesn't, I don't want to do that. Okay, you know, it's not personal. Like, you ask me a question, I'm answering the question to the best of my knowledge. It's not personal. You know? But if that's what you want to do, Allah gave you something. If you don't want to do it, that's your choice. And everyone's responsible for their choices. So it says that uh, therefore they, they hate obeying Allah and hate obedient people. Those who love Allah and obedience love those who obey Him. They especially love those who call people to His obedience and command by the same call. One of the important things to remember about this is that when you realize that it's actually about the nafs, you realize that it's more complicated than you think it is. What do I mean is there's a lot of people who do a lot of good things and it's all nafs. It's all nafs. It's like I pray in the front row of the masjid all the time. MashaAllah, I pray my five prayers in the masjid and I'm always there and I'm in the front row and I'm so pious and I my salat was interrupted because you were making too much noise. It's all I, right? It's all I. So some people, some scholars, you talk to them, they won't say I. They refer to themselves as like al-faqir, al-faqir amin, al-faqir hakadu, They don't want to say I because the I is dangerous. <laughs> you know, it's like all about me. 
And so someone could pray in the front row and it's all mess. It's like, I'm just doing, you know, I want to be in power. I want to be, I want people to respect me. I want people to look at me. I want this, I want that. It's like Busiri uh, said. He said, maybe it's that, that, I can't remember the Arabic, maybe it's that hunger is worse than satiety. Like you fast, but you're arrogant about against other people because you're fasting. Like, mashallah, I, I fast every Monday and Thursday. And look at all these people, they don't fast. They don't fast Monday and Thursday. Well, al-Mabruk, you know, as the Prophet ﷺ said, maybe some people, they get nothing out of their fast except hunger and thirst. Maybe you got nothing out of your fast except hunger and thirst. MashaAllah, I pray every night, eight rakah, tahajjud, every night. Okay? MashaAllah, you know, hopefully you got more out of that than being sleepy. Hopefully. But maybe not. You know? MashaAllah, I've taught this book and this book and this book and this book and this book. Okay, well, hopefully you got more out of that than reading a bunch of letters. But that's only with Allah. So this is a matter of nafs. You have to be careful. The nafs is very tricky. Furthermore, when knowledge appears on earth due to the presence of the scholars and is acted upon, blessings abound and sustenance descends from the heavens. We have to finish this chapter. It's just this page. This benefits life for all, including ants and all other kinds of tiny creatures. This is due to the blessings generated by and for the scholar. There's barakah. What is the verse? Uh, I feel like something like this any hafiz I, I'm very dependent on the hafiz <laughs> if the people had believed and had taqwa then Allah would have opened for them barakat he would have opened for them barakat from the heavens if they had believed they would have got there would have been blessing in the earth there's a connection it's a connection between the physical and the spiritual right? even there's Sheikh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghudda has a long intro in one of his beautiful books on the, the stories about patience by the scholars and they're seeking knowledge and stuff. He, he, because the book is big. He has all these amazing stories. And he's like, you might read these stories and think they're un- unbelievable. He's like, but you have to understand, these people had barakah. And he starts to talk about things like even the size of grapes. And he starts to narrate, because he was a great historian and scholar of hadith. So he starts to bring these pieces from all these different places in Islamic history. He's like, these people, when they described their grapes, their grapes were huge. Because they were like a ground, they were a place where there was barakah. And people worshipped Allah and they praised Allah. And so when they grew their fruit, their fruit was different. You know? SubhanAllah. So he says, when they lived their lives, their lives were different. They're able to do things we're not able to do. SubhanAllah. So he says, when he says this, this is due to the blessings generated by and for the scholar. The denizens of the heavens give glad tidings for the acts of obedience and righteous deeds that are sent from people on earth. And they seek forgiveness for those who are responsible for those deeds. I'm going to go faster because we need to finish. The opposite accrues to the one who conceals knowledge that should be rightfully manifested. Yes, Satir. Allah, the angels and the denizens of the heavens, curse the concealer of knowledge because he strives to extinguish the light of Allah. Allah protect us, Ya Allah. Allah protect us, Ya Allah. This stuff is a fitna. This stuff is a fitna. The nation state is a fitna. Modern technology is a fitna. You don't want to say things because people are going to say this, people are going to say that. It's also one of the problems, by the way, of taking your knowledge only from the internet. Because if the person is, if you're only taking that, even if they don't realize it, they're giving certain things to the internet and they're not giving other things. Whereas like if you sit and you study, there's a completeness to that. Different topics will get addressed that you wouldn't address. And, and, and like not every topic you're going to address on Facebook or on Twitter or something, right? 
Some topics you address them in the class. You address them in the masjid, you address them in the gathering, right? So if all of your content is only in that space, there are certain things that don't get covered. This also, I mentioned this before, this is also why we study from books. Because there's a completeness to it. If I just choose what I want to talk about every single week, I'm going to leave certain things out. But if I go in, in structure, then there's certain things, I'm going to have to come across them. You know? Whether it might, be, it might not even be good for me, but I'm going to have to come across it. You have to, it has to come up because this is the knowledge. As a result of his concealment, sin, oppression, enmity, and tyranny appear on earth. Allah says, Indeed, those who conceal what we have revealed of the clear proofs and guidance after it has been made clear to people in the book, they are cursed by Allah and cursed by those who write from the It is said that this verse was revealed concerning the people of the book who concealed the descriptions of the Prophet contained in their scriptures. Can you imagine that? Imagine you have a description of the Prophet in your scripture. And you're like, I'm not going to let this out. Because so then these people are going to follow him. Imagine the amount of corruption that's coming as a result of that. You know? hmm. Abu Huraira used to say, were it not for one particular verse in the Quran, I would not have narrated a single hadith. He then recited the above-mentioned verse. Look at Abu Huraira saying. It's very important to understand how these people are dealing with these things. When, like most people when they get knowledge it's not that they want to teach it they got knowledge because they just want it like I want to know Allah I want to know the Prophet so I get this knowledge they have to teach it because it's a responsibility upon them maybe some people they love teaching Abu Huraira understands the Prophet said what? he said the one who lies about me intentionally let them take their place in the hellfire so most of the Sahaba they're very scared to narrate hadith the only reason they narrated hadith is because they were more scared that the curse of Allah would be on them for concealing knowledge. I'm between two fears now. Which fear is greater? The fear that I'm going to be punished for making a mistake in something that I'm relating? Or the fear that I'm concealing knowledge that I have to reveal? In which case Allah will punish me for that too. So he says, were it not for one particular verse in the Quran, I would not have narrated a single hadith. Barah ibn Azib reports from the Prophet concerning the verse they are cursed by Allah and cursed by those who rightfully curse. This is verse uh, chapter 2, 159. He informed us of those entitled to curse these corrupt people. They are the beasts of the earth. So we said the other side when the person does what they're supposed to do, everything in creation praises them and supports them, right? When the person doesn't do what they're supposed to do, everything in creation is upset with them. Everything in creation is upset with them. This is also related from Barah. A group of the righteous forebearers have said about those who conceal beneficial knowledge, the beasts of the earth can curse them, saying, you have been denied rain because of the sins of the children of Adam. Concealing religiously beneficial knowledge leads to ignorance and sin. This results in the cessation of rainfall and in the descent of tribulations that afflict the beasts of the earth. They perish because of the sins of the children of Adam, and they curse those who are responsible for their demise. That's powerful. I was son of the Lord, the 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 I mean, how, how do you know that civilization is doing very well uh, 
Yeah. Hmm, that's an interesting question. <clears throat> I mean, I think first and very important is to remind ourselves that uh, prosperity is not an indication of anything. So, material progress is not actually an indication of anything. <laughs> it's not. Allah says in the Quran that He gives material good to people in this life to delay their punishment in the hereafter. So it's, it's not necessarily that it's, it could be. So it's a matter of um, the form follows the substance. The form follows the substance. So if the form is coming from the substance, then alhamdulillah, it's good and it's great. But if it, if it disconnects from that, then that material progress doesn't mean anything. And even if it might be used for some good, it will also inevitably, inevitably be used for great bad. And so, uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't have material progress, right? Like we, I mean, it's clear from Muslim history. I think it's, I mean, uh, it's clear from Muslim history that Muslims cared about material progress. Like they built beautiful buildings and they made great advancements and they studied science and even, even warfare, right? Like part of the reason the Ottomans initially got off to a very strong start was because of this. Like they figured out how we're going to use this gunpowder and different things and create these cannons and they helped us conquer these cities and other people didn't have them yet, you know, and then eventually they got them. So we use whatever we have, all right? But again, you know, if we're going to knock on the door of material progress, we knock on the door of material progress through the Sunnah of the Prophet and if we do that, then it will, it will create beautiful and wonderful things. Uh, that are beneficial, you know. Uh, I feel like you have a follow-up. You have, yeah. Yeah, I was just, I was just saying because uh, when you mentioned about uh, like the like, really huge graves and like uh, you know uh, you send like the kind of rainfall. Yeah. Like there's like kind of that relation. I was just wondering, like you know, it's like a lot of societies that people are really good, but you know they're like down, and then yes. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. How do we know if we have barakah or not? We can't really... Uh, we can't really conclude that. We can try to... Uh, we can try to... Uh, follow the... Causes and the steps that would lead to that. So we can try to have taqwa, we can try to have concern for the poor. We can try to give things their right. We can try to follow the Sharia in the way that we interact with the world. And if we do those things, inshallah, there will be barakah. And if a community of people do those things, inshallah, there will be barakah. There might also be trial and tribulation. Like it's not nothing's guaranteed. I mean, look at the look at the early life of the Prophet and his message. It wasn't like we don't have really like a prosperity gospel in that sense. You know, like we think well of Allah that inshallah, if we do things right, there will be khair that comes from it. But it also might be the will of Allah that like we do things right and there's khair that comes from it and then like the Mongols come and just destroy everything. It could also be the will of Allah, you know. 
So this is Danu Bala, it's an abode of test, it's a abode of trial. We can't make conclusions based on what's outside. All we can do is try to do what Allah tells us to do and know that there's khair in that. And sometimes it will be, you know, outward. And some, some people are tried with tremendous trials. You know, uh, and many righteous people have been tried with tremendous trials. Many, many nations have been tried with tremendous trials. You know, but what is the, the gold standard in all of it? The gold standard in all of it is, do I maintain my connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Do I still live and act in a way that's pleasing to the Prophet That's the standard. And if that's there, then inshallah khair will come from it. And if not in this life, in the next life, alhamdulillah. This life is short and whatever we have here is not... It's as if it doesn't exist when we compare it to what we can have in the next life, inshallah. Yes? still more beloved for me to pray than to not pray. Sometimes I pray and I'm like, man, I'm really tired right now. But I really just need to get this salat in. Because Allah commanded me to do this salat. This is, ya Allah, this is pure obedience. It's pure obedience, Allah. Like, I'm just going to do my salat. And that's fine. But maybe if, like, I truly am so exhausted and I am, I just want to pray later, then if that's really truly what's going on, then I do something to ensure that I'm likely to pray later. So, the two possibilities of doing that are you set an alarm, right? Set the alarm half an hour before Fajr even is better than not praying at all. Set the, set the alarm half an hour before Fajr, pray your Aisha, sit down, make some zikr, pray Fajr, go back to sleep. Alhamdulillah. You, know, you could do that. It's not good probably to make that a habit, but you could do that. Or something that I do sometimes is I fall asleep intentionally somewhere that's outrageously uncomfortable. <laughs> so like, you know, I'm too exhausted to pray right now. I'm just going to fall asleep right here on this chair. And I know there's no way I'm going to sleep the whole night on the chair. Like halfway through the night, I'm going to wake up. I'm going to be irritated a little bit. I'm going to be like, oh, I need to pray. 
I'm like stumble to the kitchen bathroom and make wudu and parasha. You know, so I've ensured that I'm going to wake up before Fletcher. <laughs> if not by the alarm, then by some other means. Fall asleep on the floor. I fall asleep on the floor all the time. <laughs> like, you know, our, our living room has like a rug like this, and then the books are there, alhamdulillah. So sometimes I just sit with the book, and I'm like, I'm just going to fall asleep right here. I just fall asleep right there, and then I wake up. Usually, like, my neck is hurting in some way and stuff. And then pray, <laughs> So there should be some qareena, like there should be some, I don't really, it's not indifferent to many relationships. Like sometimes we know someone will be merciful with us, but we don't want to be disrespectful either. So Allah told me that I, I have to pray. And I know that he's merciful, but I don't want to disrespect, I don't want to be like, you know, say, <laughs> like you're taking advantage of the situation. You know? So I have to do something to show that I still want to pray on time. And then sometimes there really are cases where you're just that exhausted. Fine. But you know the story of the wife of the Prophet them, right? One of his wives from the Prophet them came into the masjid and there was a rope tied across the pillars. And he was like, what is this? I forget which wife it was. He's like, what is this? And they're like, that's so-and-so, your wife, you know, that's her rope. She ties it across the pillar so that when she's praying at night, when she gets so exhausted that she can't stand anymore, she just holds on to the rope. And she continues praying. And the Prophet was like, okay, that's a little bit much. Like, untie the rope. And if you get that tired, just sit down and sleep a little bit and then get up and pray. That's what he said, son of Allah. So... Admittedly, that's probably they were referring to optional prayer, not fraud prayer, right? Um, yeah, I mean, it's too much, much ado about not that much. I mean, you just try. I found generally that if I'm um, stricter about praying, especially for Isha, if I'm stricter about praying in the beginning of the time, it's a better for me. Especially as we get into the winter and the fall and stuff. If I know, okay, Isha's coming in 6.30, and I'm going to pray as soon as it comes in. I don't have that. If I wait until later, then I'm going to have that problem. Oh, I want to be able to focus. I want to be able to really enjoy it. It's okay. Just pray your fard in the beginning. Save your enjoyment for after people go to sleep. Use it for your nafil. You know? <laughs> enjoy your nafil prayer, your optional prayer, and everything else. And get the fard done. Inshallah. I love it. And there's great, 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 like we shouldn't. The Prophet them taught us that the best way to come closer to Allah is by doing what He's obligated upon us. The obligation is the most important thing. We take care of our family, we get halal income, we pray our five prayers. These are like, in our spiritual development, these are the absolute most important things. Really get, get those things right, inshallah. And sometimes it's hard and Allah is merciful. Yes? Um, I was really interested in that uh, statement where the sky is weak for the believer for 40 days. Mm -hmm. I like seeing like, groups of Muslims more than 40 days, mm -hmm. I thought it was more cultural practice. Is there, are there like other things from our tradition that talk about like why 40 people days. would then more than 40 days or is that just a cultural thing? Yeah, I'm not sure. One thing that I found over time is that there are a lot of things that I thought were just cultural practices. And with time, like we have to realize that, especially things related to death and these kind of things, like, some of these cultures have been Muslim for a really long time. So, it's not, un of course there are cultural things that have nothing to do with Islam. But some of these things, 
they have foundations we don't realize. You dig a little bit deeper, or a lot a bit deeper, and you find something. Like I, when I read that, actually, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking, huh, that's interesting because there are people who do this whole 40-day thing. I'm not really sure where that comes from. And there is, a, of course, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, there's prob- I, would ima- I wouldn't be surprised if you found other things. And those are kind of like the things that ended up being what inspired people to do this. Although maybe it's not like so sound. Even this narration. It doesn't, he doesn't narrate it in a way that seems to indicate, it, indicate that it's very sound. See, he seems to narrate it in a way that's kind of like, even Bukhari and Muslim do this, by the way. Like there's a difference between what they narrate in the body of the text versus what they narrate in the chapter headings. So sometimes they'll narrate something in the chapter heading that doesn't meet their conditions of authenticity, but they're using it because it supports what meets their conditions of authenticity. So this seems like a Anishayi Stat Musubi, but it's a long way to say Allah. Anyone else have anything? Nothing? So we finished this now, chapter 6, I guess. 7 we have. We're getting there. We finished about 30 pages. We have 25 left. <laughs> We're getting there. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Alright. We ask you to make us from those who remember you in the morning and the evening. We ask you to make us from those who remember you often. We ask you to make us from those who you have given your blessings. We ask you to make us from those who the angels seek their forgiveness. We ask you all to make us from those who are always turned towards you and always seeking you and always walk, walking in the way that you want us to walk, Ya Allah. Allah, we ask you to allow us to taste the sweetness of Iman. Allah, we ask you to show us truth as truth and help us to follow it and show us falsehood as falsehood and help us to stay away from it. Allah, we ask you to make beloved to us Iman. To make beloved to us Iman. And to make it firm in our hearts. We ask you, Allah, to uh, help us to be around those who bring us closer to you. And to be from those who bring to life your remembrance in this world. Allahumma amin. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Barakallahu alayhi wa sallam.